This morning, we are beginning a sermon series in the book of Amos. Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament time, in the days of the divided kingdom, when uh, the nation of Israel was split into two nations. The nation uh, that we commonly know as, as Israel was the ten tribes in the north, and the kingdom of Judah was the two tribes in the south. The time period of Amos was approximately the mid-700s B.C. Amos himself was from Judah, but was called to go to Israel for the northern kingdom of Israel. This was a time of, of outward and material prosperity, but a time of great spiritual poverty and wickedness. And as such, his message proved to be unpopular to the people, as, as we'll see as we work through the book. So this morning I would invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 1, verse 1. This morning we'll be in Amos chapter 1, and we'll be going down into chapter 2, uh, verse 3. So please read with me as we, as we hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherds' pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. So the people of Aram will go exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it will consume her citadels. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Teman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle. And a storm... On the day of tempest, their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because he burned 
the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kiriath, and Moab will die amid tumult with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. Now the opening verses, verses 1 and 2, give us a very uh, brief introduction to, to Amos and the period in which he served. And verse 2 then kind of serves as a preface to the entire book. And though uh, the prophet Amos is quoted in the New Testament, he is nowhere else mentioned in the Old Testament. When we piece together what we learn here with what we can glean from elsewhere in the, in the book of Amos and piecing together the, the context of Old Testament history in general, we can put together this following sketch of Amos. Amos was, as we see here, uh, from among the sheep herders of Tekoa. Tekoa was a town in the territory of Judah, six miles south approximately from, from Bethlehem and roughly 12 miles south from Jerusalem. Back in the days of King David, Tekoa was the town from which Joab recruited a wise woman to go in and speak to King David so as to induce him to bring Absalom back from his self-imposed exile that he'd been living in after killing his brother Amnon. And so the town where she was from, Tekoa, was the town that Amos was from as well. Verse 1, again, makes it clear that Amos lived during the days of the divided monarchy when Uzziah was king of the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. Jeroboam, sometimes called Jeroboam II, was king in the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital city in Samaria. The the Jeroboam mentioned here is not to be confused with the the Jeroboam who initially rebelled against the the Davidic monarchy at the beginning of the divided kingdom. This is a a second uh, Jeroboam who came many, many years later. And though Amos is from Judah, his ministry that is recorded in this book is directed toward the northern kingdom of Israel. When we get to the latter portion of chapter 7, we'll see that that there was this confrontation between Amos and a priest of Bethel whose name was Amaziah. And in this confrontation, Amaziah tells Amos to to go back home to Judah. They don't want him prophesying any longer there at Bethel in the northern kingdom. We gather then that his message was not well received. Uh, We find there in in verse 1 that his ministry took place two years before the earthquake. Now, we don't know precisely what year this earthquake occurred, but interestingly enough, this earthquake is also mentioned in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. And so given the historical setting of verse 1, we can approximately place Amos as prophesying in Israel somewhere between roughly 767 B.C. and 750 B.C. And as it turns out, this was only a few decades before the fall of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C., only 30 to 45 years or so before that time was the prophecy of Amos. And verse 2, as we said, gives us a preface of the entire book. We find the Lord roaring from Zion. From Jerusalem, he utters his voice. Jerusalem, of course, was the city of the great king, the place where the Lord had chosen to manifest his presence among his people. It's from there that the Lord's voice sounds forth. And his voice sounds forth with a roar like a lion. It's a roar of judgment, as is evidenced by its effects, seen there in verse 2. It 
causes the shepherd's pasture grounds to mourn, and it dries up the summit of Carmel. These places that should have been places of life, that were green and alive and growing, are now caused to shrivel and dry up. The words of this book are the Lord's words. And so we read in verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned concerning Israel. Or more literally, it could be translated, which he saw concerning Israel. And so on the one hand, these are the words of Amos in that he spoke them. But at a deeper and more important level, these were words which he saw. In other words, these words did not originate from him. They came from God. God was the one who revealed these words to Amos. And Amos saw them concerning Israel and Amos spoke them. And so God is the one who inspired Amos to speak these words. And this really gets to the heart of our doctrine of Scripture. The words that we read in Scripture are, on the one hand, the words of men, prophets and the apostles, in that they were spoken and or written by the prophets and the apostles. But the source of these words was not from men. The source was God. He gave them the words which they spoke. Here in the case of Amos, these words were the words which he saw. And we read of this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's, that's what's going on here. Amos, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so then, having seen this, this introduction to the words of Amos, let's walk through these, these opening six prophecies, these six oracles that we have seen, stretching from chapter 1, verse 3, down to chapter 2, verse 3, against these nations which surrounded Israel and Judah. Let's, let's walk through these first, and then we'll come around at the end and try to draw together some general observations and application. This first prophecy in verses 3 through 5 is directed against Damascus. The Lord promised to bring punishment upon Damascus because of the way that they treated the inhabitants of Gilead. Gilead was the Israelite territory on the east side of the Jordan River. And this prophecy against Damascus is directed uh, not only against the city of Damascus, but against the nation as a whole, which was the nation of, of Aram, sometimes referred to in some translations as Syria. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, Elisha had prophesied to Hazael that Hazael would become king over Aram and that as king he would set the strongholds of Israel on fire, that he would kill their young men, dash their young ones in pieces, and rip up the women who were with child. And then later on in 2 Kings 10, 32 and 33, we find Hazael defeating the Israelites, in particular in the territory of Gilead. We find later on, 2 Kings 13, 3, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. And then just a few verses later, 2 Kings 13, 7, we find that, uh, that the king of Aram had made Israel like dust at the threshing. Given all of that history from 2 Kings, it's really no wonder that the Lord says here of Damascus that he threshed Gilead with sharp implements of iron. The Lord had used them as an instrument to punish the Israelites, but that did not mean 
But in doing so, they were innocent. They had sinned in their actions. And the Lord promises judgment. They would be defeated in war. The house of their ruler would be destroyed. Their citadels consumed. The gate bars of Damascus would be broken. The inhabitants cut off and the Arameans exiled to Kir. And 2 Kings 16.9 tells us of the fulfillment of this prophecy when we read that the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kir. Now this place, Kir, seems to be an area in what we would now know as northern Iran, near the vicinity of the Caspian Sea. And this exile happened in 732 B.C., probably some 20 or 30 years after the prophecy of Amos. That's the first oracle of judgment. The second is verses 6 through 8, a prophecy against Gaza, and that is to say a prophecy against the Philistines, the, the land of Philistia, and indeed four of the five major Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ikron, are mentioned here. city of Gath is, is not mentioned, but, uh, but certainly we find that this is directed against the land of the Philistines as a whole. As we find at the end of verse 8, the remnant of the Philistines will perish. And their sin is mentioned there in verse 6, and it is said that they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. And if you look down to the third oracle of judgment, the judgment against Tyre, we find something similar in regard to them. Verse 9, they are to be punished because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So there's something, there's something going on here between the Philistines and Tyre. They seem to be involved in some of the same kind of thing, some of the same kind of wickedness. What was that wickedness? Obviously, here in the text, Amos does not give us very many details about what he meant, about the deporting on the one hand and the delivering up on the other hand of this entire population to Edom. And we can assume his contemporaries would have known quite well what he was talking about. But when we piece together what we find in Joel chapter 3, and so if you look back about a page to, to the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it seems likely that the Philistines and the people of Tyre were cooperating together in some kind of a slave trade. And so Joel 3, verse 6, makes reference to them as selling the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their territory. And evidently from our text here in Amos chapter 1, the Greeks were not their only customer. Evidently, it seems that they were dealing with the Edomites as well. And so what we seem to be having here is the, the taking of innocent people, the enforcing them into slavery, and selling them. Stealing of a person is the worst kind of theft. And so it is that we read in Exodus 21:16, he who kidnaps a man whether he sells him or is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Under Old Testament law, you get the death penalty for stealing a person. Meanwhile, if you stole an oxen or a sheep or something like that, you had to pay back five oxen for the oxen or four sheep for the sheep that was stolen. But stealing a person, you get the death penalty for that. This is the worst kind of theft. The penalty is proportionate to the crime. And hence, the judgments are prophesied for the Philistine cities and for Tyre. The city of Gaza would later be defeated by Hezekiah, 
king of Judah, as we find in 2 Kings 18, verse 8. King Uzziah of Judah, who was the king of Judah during Amos' lifetime, also gained supremacy over Ashdod, as we find in 2 Chronicles 26, 6. And in addition to these conquests by Judah, the Philistine cities were later all on conquered by the Assyrians in the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Lord announced to Tyre in that third oracle that he would send uh, fire upon the wall of Tyre and that it would consume its citadels. In subsequent centuries, this was fulfilled by various attacks upon Tyre by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, and by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar apparently took the portion of Tyre that was on the mainland, but they could not capture the island city, uh, the, the portion of Tyre that was on an island off of the coast. But the Greeks under Alexander did succeed in capturing the island city after they built a causeway out to it from the mainland over to the island. Such was the judgment that the Lord executed against Tyre at the hands of many nations. These two nations seem to have been collaborating together in some kind of a slave trade in which they were kidnapping innocent people, forcing them into slavery, delivering them over to Edom. The fourth of these oracles is directed against the nation of Edom. Edom, The Edomites were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And the sins for which Edom was to be judged are given in verse 11. Because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. The sin described here seems to point to the continual hostility and the continual animosity with which Edom behaved toward the Israelites and the people of Judah. There was this continual hatred in the heart of Edom. And this resulted in continual fighting and enmity. And so just as an example, we read in 2 Chronicles 28, 17, for again... The Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. And that particular incident in 2 Chronicles 28 happened after the time of Amos. But the point is, is that there in the text it says, For again the Edomites did this. In other words, there was a recurring pattern. This had been going on for a long, long time. The Edomites had it out for the Israelites and for the people of Judah. This was not something new. This behavior was par for the course in the relationship between Judah and Israelite and, and the people of Judah. And so we, we see this later on, certainly in their gloating and exultant behavior after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. This kind of behavior was not an anomaly and it did not come out of thin air. It had been brewing for centuries. And this stifling of compassion and maintaining of fury and outrage is the reason for which the Lord announces that his judgment will come upon them. And indeed, the Lord's judgment did come upon them when Nebuchadnezzar captured the territory held by Edom around about the year 582 B.C. The fifth oracle in this sequence given by Amos is directed against the sons of Ammon, verses 13 through 15. The sin of Ammon mentioned here is that they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. Now we don't know too much about the particular details of this specific expansion of Ammonite territory to which Amos was referring, but the campaign was brutal, horribly brutal. 
This is barbarity at its worst, cruelty at its height. These pregnant women were non-combatants, and the blow against their unborn children was a blow against the future of the Israelites of Gilead. But these Ammonites didn't care. They were willing to do whatever it took to assert their will and extend their borders, and they were willing to go above and beyond what was required for them to succeed in taking more territory. The judgment of destruction again fell upon them at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in about 582 B.C. And then the, the final oracle that we're looking at this morning, this against the, the Moabites in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is directed against them for what they did to the already dead king of Edom. Again, we don't know the precise details of the particular case here, nor do we know the circumstances surrounding it, but this was an act of great wickedness. They burned the bones of the dead king of Edom, and they burned them to lime, which is to represent the completeness of the burning, and therefore the completeness of the destruction of this king. This is a desecration of a man, someone who was made in the image of God, and the way by which this was a way by which the Moabites showed a complete disrespect toward their enemies. And the Lord promises that he will judge them as a result. He would send fire on Moab, consume its citadels, take the lives of the Moabites, and uh, slay their princes. And once again, this is fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians about 582 B.C. So then, now that we've walked through and we've seen some of the contours of these six oracles of judgments. Let's let's step back then and make some observations. First of all, observe this that these judgments are directed against pagan nations. These are not nations with whom the Lord was in a covenant relationship as he was with the nation of Israel. The Lord had not given his codified law to these nations as he had to the Israelites. But nevertheless, all these nations here are still accountable for what they have done. They have acted wickedly, and therefore they stand under the judgment of the Lord. Even though they had not received the Lord's special revelation, at least not to the extent that the Israelites had, they were still accountable to the Lord because they were his creatures, and they're responsible for their actions. And this is because of our accountability as creatures of God. This is not dependent on whether or not we have God's special revelation. When we speak of God's special revelation, we're talking about God's spirit-inspired word, which reveals God's character to us and his will to us. Tells us what we are to believe and what we are to do. We might be tempted to suppose that those who do not possess God's special revelation are not held responsible for their violations of God's requirements. That's not true. Jesus put it this way in Luke 12, 47 and 48. He said, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Now, we can glean from our Lord's words there that increased knowledge increases our responsibility. That's for sure. But notice this, that the servant who did not know his master's will and did not do his master's will still got flogged. 
Similarly, we read in Romans 1, 18-20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Again, Paul says in Romans 3.9, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Even though the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God and the Greeks were not, the Greeks were still sinners and were still accountable to God. God has revealed himself in nature. He has made mankind, men and women, in his image. He's given us consciences that inform us of right and wrong. As the 1689 Baptist Confession expressed it, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. This is what Christ teaches us. This is what Paul teaches us. And we see the practical ramifications of this truth at work here in our text in Amos. Even these pagan nations are accountable to God. For their actions. And the same is true today. Every nation, every individual in every nation is accountable to God for their actions and therefore subject to the judgment of God. And if they are found apart from faith in Jesus Christ and the cleansing from sin which only comes through faith in Him, they'll be judged guilty and condemned eternally. This truth should stir us up to missions and evangelism because hell is real and there are real people who are going there. And Christ has called his church to be an agent of reconciliation. I love the way Paul expresses it in 2 Corinthians 5. It is as though God were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. We need to be telling people the good news of the gospel. Christ opens the way for those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. Those who desire forgiveness and reconciliation with God may come without cost and without price. They may come to the one whom God the Father has appointed as a savior for his people. And it's our task to go to every nation, including our own nation, and proclaim the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we we observe that, that all men... All women, all nations are accountable to God. A second thing that we observe here is the, the corporate nature of the judgments which were coming upon these nations. These nations had widespread corporate sin, widespread corporate guilt, and therefore the judgment which the Lord announced here would be widespread and corporate as well. Now perhaps not everyone in each of these nations had committed the particular sins with which those nations were charged, but nevertheless, the judgment which was coming upon them would be a corporate judgment. Those nations, those cities, etc., would be judged. And that means that the nation as a whole, even those who did not directly participate in the crimes mentioned, would have to face at least earthly and temporal consequences that came upon their nations. Such temporal judgments also came upon the nations of Israel and Judah. And when those judgments came, there were certainly some godly and righteous men and women who were swept up in the judgment that came who were not guilty of 
any idolatry or rank wickedness which the nation as a whole was being condemned for. There were some godly Jews who were sent into exile. Jeremiah's life was turned upside down by the turbulent and ungodly events in Judah leading up to the Babylonian conquest and by the events which followed the Babylonian conquest of the nation of Judah. God sometimes judges nations corporately and uh, does so as a result of the wickedness which had been perpetrated by the nation at large. And when this happens, that means that even those who were not directly involved in the particular sin that's being judged, even those who were godly, sometimes still suffer at least the earthly consequences of the temporal judgment. This doesn't mean that they are guilty of sins that they did not commit, but it does mean that earthly suffering may come upon them because of the sins of those with whom they are connected. Just think, for example, of, of Jonathan in the book of First Samuel. Jonathan was a great and godly man. First Samuel 23:16, we find that he went out to David and strengthened him in God. This, this is a good man. This is a godly man. But what happened to Jonathan? Jonathan ended up dead on Mount Gilboa fighting the Philistines when judgment overtook his father, King Saul. And so since our earthly condition and well-being is to some degree connected with the well-being of the nation or the society in which we live, we ought to be therefore seeking the well-being of that nation or that society or that city. And so the exiles in Babylon were told in Jeremiah 29, 7, to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Seeking the well-being of the city includes being good and respectful and peaceful citizens in it. In our context, it also means seeking to evangelize the lost, bringing them to faith and repentance for their eternal good and for their temporal good as well. Seeking the well-being of the place that we live means that we try to turn that society away from the kinds of evils that it is engaged in. And we do this chiefly by bringing the gospel to the places where we live and seeking by whatever means we can to limit evil and advance good. If we uh, can vote in an election, we should be seeking to vote for the good of that land in which we live. Even if the choices on the ballot may seem like a choice between uh, the lesser of two evils, even in a situation like that, I would still say that choosing the lesser of two evils is actually choosing the greater good and therefore is seeking the good of that society in which we live. And certainly for those who are in political office or who serve as judges or law enforcement officers, they too should be seeking to limit evil and promote what is good. When we consider this issue of corporate judgment or corporate well-being, I think we could all agree with the words of Matthew Henry when he said that every passenger is concerned in the safety of the ship. If the ship goes down, we're all going down. You might not be the one who blew the hole in the side, but still, every passenger is concerned with the safety of the ship. And so we need to be looking out for the well-being of the places in which we live, trying to limit evil according to the ways and means that we can, and also trying to promote good. And chiefly, this is done by winning the lost, bringing them to Christ. When people come to Christ, that's when real change happens. And now, let's look at, thirdly here, at the, the nature of the offenses upon which the Lord pronounces judgment. We know from Scripture that the Lord punishes every kind of sin. 
But it is noticeable and noteworthy here that all of the sins described in these six oracles, from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 3, all of these sins are directed against people. If we think about the two great commandments, first being love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength, and second being to love your neighbor as yourself, if we can kind of think of sins in those two categories, the, the sins here are all violations of the second great commandment. These people were not loving their neighbors. And there's no doubt, though, that all of these nations were also flagrantly violating the first great commandment. These were idolatrous nations. They didn't worship the Lord, they worshiped idols. And yet, interestingly enough, what the Lord focuses on here as he announces judgment against them are not violations of the first great commandment, but violations of the second great commandment. Just look at the sins. Verse 3, Damascus threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron, heartless and cruel in their dealings. They mistreated them in war. Verse 6, Gaza and the Philistines uh, deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom, engaging in man-stealing, kidnapping, enslaving the innocent. Verse 9, the people of Tyre delivered up an entire population to Edom, did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. That covenant may have been a treaty that they explicitly violated or perhaps could be in reference to something else. Whatever it was, they violated it, and they delivered over people to Edom, seemingly as slaves. Verse 11, Edom pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and his fury uh, was kept going forever. He had this lack of compassion and anger brewing continually in his heart. Verse 13, Ammon ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Thought that the end justifies the means. Whatever it takes to enlarge our territory, we'll do it. Doesn't matter who we have to run over or what it takes, we're going to do it. Chapter 2, verse 2, Moab is condemned because they burned the bones of the king of Edom. They showed complete disregard for him as a person, a complete lack of humanity in their actions. The sins here are all sins that are committed on the horizontal plane against other people. These are all violations of the second great commandment. People who behave in this way are clearly not loving their neighbor as themselves. Now in making this point, I want to be careful because I'm not suggesting that sins against the second great commandment are worse than sins against the first great commandment. I'm not suggesting that sins against mankind are worse than sins against God. After all, the first great commandment is first, second great commandment is second. But the point that I'm making here is that sins against the second great commandment really matter to God. Even sins against the second great commandment are sins against God. The Lord is very concerned with how we treat others. In fact, the way that we treat others is an expression of our love for God. If we really, in fact, love God... We will, in fact, love others. And if we do not love others, that will simply be evidence that we do not love God. And so John tells us in 1 John 4, 19 and 20, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And what John says here in regard to love for our brothers, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, certainly applies broadly to our neighbors as a whole, even non-believers. If we claim to love God and hate our neighbors, be they Christian or non-Christian, we're liars. The love of God and love for neighbor go hand in hand. They must go hand in hand. And God takes very seriously the way that we treat 
our neighbors. He hates the cruelty that happens when people run over and exploit and harm or kill just because they're in the way and are viewed as a means to an end. He hates the cruelty that happens when people are treated like commodities, commodities that can be treated like animals or worse, so long as profits are made and goals are met. He hates the continual anger and fury and the stifling of compassion. He hates the inhumanity and the lack of respect and the lack of common decency that are sometimes so evident in human relationship. God takes this kind of sin, these kinds of sins, very seriously. And that being the case, it behooves us to look to our lives and to our relationships with others and to ask if there are ways in which we are guilty of any of this kind of thing. Now, obviously, if we compare our own personal practice with the barbarity and the cruelty that we see here in the text, we might think that we can come, off, come away pretty clean, right? We might think that we have never treated anyone so harshly that the way we treated them can actually be compared to threshing them with a sharp implement of iron. Most of us have never personally participated in deporting entire populations or in kidnapping and enslaving people, though our nation does have some of those kinds of things in its history. Most of us have not pursued a brother with a sword or treated pregnant women barbarously or burned the bones of our dead enemies. Most of us would probably come off pretty clean outwardly in those respects. But haven't we sinned against others in lesser ways? Haven't we sinned against others in ways which, while maybe not at the level of cruelty expressed here in the text, are at least imitating the spirit of these nations? How many times have we run roughshod over others and treated them with contempt and disdain? Because we're in a hurry and they're in the way. We've got places to go. We've got a job to do. We've got borders to expand, if you will. And maybe we're not intending to be impatient and unkind and heartless or cruel, but in the drive to get to where you're going and in the drive to do what you think you need to do, you just end up running over people and they become collateral damage in some sense. You're rude to your spouse, you're short with your children, you behave angrily in traffic, someone sins against you in some way and you simply refuse to forgive. You stifle mercy and compassion. You tear at them continually, at least in your mind, if not outwardly. You maintain fury forever, if not outwardly, furious at least internally, right here. You want to go ahead in life and you're willing to take advantage of others and use them as stepping stones to get there and refuse to give them what is rightly theirs, whether it be honor or money or, or whatever else. You refuse to treat people with fairness and justice because you're looking out for number one. That happens to all of us, I think. Again, these sins are not at the level of the barbarity and cruelty that we see here, but there is a spirit that we see here in the actions of these nations, which spirit you and I can emulate. We're not immune to that same spirit. How often does that same spirit raise its ugly heads within each one of us? And, shocking as it may sound, we should not suppose that we are immune from actually committing the barbarous and cruel things and in the actual ways that these people did. We might, to think, we might like to think that we're morally superior to these nations of old, but we're not. I remember some, some years ago, I was, uh, was working at UPS, and a couple of, uh, a couple of my coworkers were, were speaking together, and they were speaking about 
some, some horrible crime that had been uh, perpetrated. And the one said to the other, he said, now you or I would never do anything like that. Well, I hope they wouldn't. But, but for the grace of God, you never know what you could do. Paul warns us, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This passage speaks to us of lack of love for neighbor. It shows its manifestation in the most cruel way, but it points to even more small ways in which we can do this. Now, as we've walked through this passage and considered it, we've seen that there's a lot of bad news here. People were wicked, and they're judged for it. As it is, this, this passage is law and not gospel. Paul tells us in Romans 4.15 that the law brings wrath. We see it right here. These people had violated the law of God and therefore were subject to the wrath of God. They deserved his judgment, and so they were going to receive it and did receive it. Praise God, the message of Scripture as a whole is not only law, it also contains the gospel. There's not only bad news that sin brings judgment, but there's also good news that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sins are forgiven on account of his death and resurrection. Sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ receive his righteousness, their sins are forgiven, and they are reconciled to God the Father. They've been separated from God because of their sins, but through faith in Christ they are now brought near to God and enter into fellowship with him. And this applies even to the worst kinds of sinners who have committed the worst kinds of sins. From the fall of 1945 until the fall of 1946, the Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor and U.S. Army chaplain Henry Garricky served as a chaplain to the Nazi war criminals who were on trial at Nuremberg at the close of World War II for crimes against humanity, the horrible things that they had done. And Garricky had been selected for the job because he spoke German, because he had experience with prison ministry, and because he was a Lutheran pastor. And as he attempted to minister to the men who were on trial, he became convinced that some of them had truly trusted in Christ. He said, I have had many years of experience as a prison chaplain, and I do not believe that I am easily deluded by phony reformations at the 11th hour. And among those whom he believed was truly converted was Joachim von Ribbentrop, who had been Hitler's foreign minister. He was famously remembered as the German official who had greeted King George VI in England with a Heil Hitler salute. Probably not the most politically expedient way to greet King of England. But, uh, but as, uh, as, as Ribbentrop's uh, trial was, was going on and his sentence had, had been announced, Ribbentrop, toward the end of his life, spent, most, spent a lot of time reading the Bible and reading Luther's catechism. And when the time for executions came, Ribbentrop was the first to be executed, and Garricky was there with him and later recounted, he said, Before he left his cell, I prayed with him and heard him say that he put all his trust in Christ. And he recalled that as, as Ribbentrop was on the scaffold, an American officer asked him if he had a last word to say. I do not recall all of von Ribbentrop's last statement, but it ended with God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to me and said, I'll see you again. Now certainly it's not granted to any of us to see into any man's heart, 
But the gospel is true, and salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is sufficient to cleanse from any sin, even the most horrible, even the most heinous. And so while God's judgments are just, nevertheless there is forgiveness and grace for all who will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness for all who will come to Christ. And so let's, let's reflect on that and rejoice in that as we come to the Lord's table here in a few moments, remembering once again the, the blood of Christ which cleanses us from all sin, His blood of the covenant by which we are cleansed. Let's remember His great sacrifice for us as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, even for passages like this, which, which show sin in all of its ugliness and horrific nature. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see it for what it is, to realize how horrible it is, and turn from it, and turn to you through faith in Christ. Father, we ask that you would grant us continual repentance, that we would recognize our sins more and more deeply, we would turn from them more and more thoroughly, that we would walk with you more faithfully. Lord, we praise you for your great mercies to us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.